encourage you to open the Word of God and let's look at Matthew chapter 9. And we will focus this morning on verses 35 through 38. Matthew 9, 35 through 38. Beginning in verse 35. And Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. It's been an exciting journey over the last several months as we have walked with the Lord through his Galilean ministry. We've gotten to know him better as we've observed our Savior. We've watched him perform his miracles We've seen his power and authority exercised, and we've just been able to behold the majesty and the excellency of Christ. It's been a a wonderful time, and I hope you have joined with me in just kind of getting lost in the wonder of his glory and grace. And over the past few weeks, we have examined three sets of three miracles of Jesus that the Holy Spirit has chosen to reveal to us in his word out of the many thousands that he did miracles that proved his messianic claims by demonstrating his power and his authority over disease, over sin, over nature, over demons, over death itself. And may I remind you that through his miracles, many were drawn to him in saving faith, but For many, they were driven away in disbelief, not because they didn't believe his miraculous power, but rather they did not want to submit to him as Savior and Lord. They loved their sin too much to do that. Thus, their rejection in such in light of such overwhelming evidence sealed them in their unbelief and sentenced them to eternal judgment. And the same is true today. For those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and as Sovereign Lord of their life. And today's text will reveal something very interesting to us. First of all, we're going to see a summary of his public ministry, the nature of it at least. And, And then it will move us into the next stage of ministry where his ministry will be primarily private, at least temporarily so as he begins to focus on the few that are around him, especially the twelve, and especially three of them. But for a moment, reflect with me upon his public ministry. Remember now, there have been hordes of people following the Lord. They have been dogging him. He has not had a moment's rest. They have marveled at his power. In fact, in verse 33 we see that the multitudes marveled. It could be translated, they were flabbergasted. They were awestruck. To use our way of speech, they were blown away at what Jesus was doing. And again, some of them believed that he was the Messiah, resulting in salvation, but most of them rejected him, resulting in damnation. They were merely curiosity seekers. They wanted to be fed They wanted more fishes and loaves, or they wanted to be entertained, but they certainly did not want to worship him and to submit to his lordship. But then notice in verse 35, we have a bit of a summary here of the of the Lord's public ministry. It says that Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages. Now, let me give you a bit of perspective here, folks. The region of Galilee in which he was ministering, it was an area about 40 miles wide and about 70 miles long. To think of it in our context, it would be about from Clarksville down to Franklin and maybe from over to Dixon, from Dixon, maybe over to Gallatin. If you could just carve out a strip in Middle Tennessee, 
that was about the region that Jesus wandered around as he went to all of the cities and villages and preached the kingdom. In fact, Josephus, who was a famous Jewish historian of the day, tells us, and I quote, the cities are numerous and the multitude of villages everywhere crowded with men owing to the fertility of the soil so that the smallest of them contains about 15,000 inhabitants, end quote. Now, if you were to calculate that, what you would see is that the region that Jesus ministered was an area that contained about three million people. Larger than the inhabitants of the region that I just defined for you here in Middle Tennessee. And we see that he was teaching in their synagogues. The synagogue was a place of worship. It was also kind of like the city hall. It was like the community center as well. They had one in, in each of the towns that had at least a, a small contingent of Jewish people. Usually these places, the synagogues, were without a roof so that the people could look up into the heavens while they worshiped the Lord of the heaven. And uh, oftentimes the synagogue was put on a hill. You could go over there today in Israel and you will see some of these, some of the ruins of the synagogues. Very often they would have a large pole similar to our steeples that would go high into the sky so that people could see where the synagogue would be located. They met on the Sabbath primarily, although they would meet at other times during the week for other types of activities. But they would meet primarily on the Sabbath for worship services. And those services were very simple. The services would begin with a period of thanksgiving and praise. Some people would give testimony as to God's faithfulness. Then there would be the reading of the Pentateuch, the books of the law, the first five books of the Bible. It would be read in Hebrew and then it would need to be translated into Aramaic because that was the language of the common folks of the of the day. And then next they would read from one of the prophets perhaps Jeremiah or Isaiah and these the prophets would then be would be translated and then there, that would be followed by a careful exposition of the text that was read in fact this this very process is described in Nehemiah 8 and verse 8 it says that they read from the book they read from the book from the law of God translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading now, if I can digress for a moment, some have asked, what is expository preaching, especially those that would enter into this church, because that's what we do here. And first, I would want to tell you that expository preaching has always been the prescribed way of preaching in Scripture. We see it evidenced throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament. In fact, we read in 2 Timothy 2 or 4 and verse 2 that Paul tells the, the pastor there, young Timothy, to preach the word. He doesn't say preach about the word. He doesn't say give your personal opinions, no book reports. You're not to get up and philosophize. It's not a time for a stand-up comedy routine. It's not a time for entertainment. It's not a time for a man to stand in the pulpit and tell stories. It's not a time for motivational pep talks. It is a time to open up the word of God to teach it and explain what it means and allow the text of Scripture to preach itself. In fact, the Jewish scholar Philo, who lived in Alexandria during um, the, the time of our, orth, our, our Lord's earthly life uh, in, in Alexandria, Egypt, he said, and I quote, synagogues are mainly for the detailed reading and exposition of Scripture, end quote. In fact, if you were to look on our mission statement on our website, you will see a little expansion of this concept of expository preaching. And if I can quote what I wrote there, the term exposit literally means to expound or explain in a detailed manner. Expository preaching is therefore a doctrinal proclamation of the word of God derived from an exegetical process that is concerned only with the revelation of God, not the wisdom of man, and therefore carefully conveys the God intended meaning of a text, passionately applying that meaning to the contemporary issues of life with an internal zeal and authority 
that cannot be extinguished. Well, this is what Jesus did. And in verse 35, we see that he is teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That is, he preached the good news of the kingdom. It's the kingdom of heaven or sometimes called the kingdom of God. The words are or the, 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 the phrase there, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven are used synonymously throughout Scripture, referring to a call to repentance. This is what the Lord did. He called the people to repentance and belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, you could look at Mark's gospel in chapter one and verse 14, and you have a further description of Jesus Galilean ministry. It says there in verses 14 through 15 that Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Also, we can see some examples of this in Matthew 13. There are a variety of of parables there that Jesus where Jesus preaches about the kingdom. You might remember one in verse 33 of Matthew 13. We read the kingdom of heaven, the Lord says, is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Another example of the kingdom of heaven in that same chapter is found in verse verse 45 and following where the Lord says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So the point is simply this, whether you're the farmer or the merchant, whether you stumble across the glorious gospel of the kingdom of God unintentionally in the field of life, or if you're searching for it like a merchant would search for a pearl of inestimable value. In either case, when you find salvation, when you find forgiveness of sin When you find eternal life, when you find that glorious gospel gift, you give up everything to embrace it. That's the point. That becomes the consuming passion of your life. As the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3.8, he considered everything in his life to be rubbish in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Well, this is what the Lord preached in the synagogues, in the villages. So this is the proclamation and the power of the kingdom. The Lord would preach this present spiritual kingdom, referring to his reign in the lives of men. When a person repents and and their sins are forgiven and they experience the miracle of the new birth, he tells people how to live as kingdom citizens. But also you can look at his earthly ministry and you will see that he also spoke of the future earthly kingdom that he will whereupon he will reign upon the earth. In the millennium, and he also spoke of his ultimate heavenly kingdom, where he will rule and reign eternally in a new heaven and a new earth. So this is the message of the gospel of which we are not to be ashamed for. It is what the power of God unto salvation. We are also reminded in this inspired summary that he was healing at the end of verse 35, every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, as we have discussed Previously in great detail, but now in verses 36 through 38, we see not only a glimpse into the heart and the mind of God, but also a transition from our Lord's public ministry to a more private ministry. And we're going to examine three characteristics from this text where we glean some wonderful truths with respect to our Lord Jesus that I pray will bring conviction to us all. We're going to look at three things. First of all, his divine compassion. Secondly, his divine reflection. And thirdly, his divine provision. First of all, let's look at his divine compassion in verse 36. Again, we read, and seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Friends, here we see the heart of the Savior. We see his infinite compassion for sinners. That part of him that would ultimately take him to a cruel cross. If you read the New Testament, you will frequently see that the Lord healed people and even fed them because he had compassion for them. 
But friends, his compassion went far beyond their mere temporal needs. You see, he could see that horrible defect in the human heart, that defect of sin. The Lord could look beyond their earthly miseries, whatever they might be, and he could look into the inconceivable horrors of hell where an eternity of suffering would never be able to expiate their sin. Where no amount of human punishment could atone for sin. Where sinful man could never be able to make reparation to God for his offense. You see, only the perfectly righteous God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, could pay that price. Only the Lord could appease the just wrath of God. Now, naturally, such rhetoric is profoundly offensive to man in our modern day. Because it strikes a blow to his pride and his warped sense of self-righteousness. Because again, man's view of his own sin is very finite. It's as finite as God's holiness is infinite. In fact, man's perspective of his own sin is as shallow as the morning dew on a blade of grass. You see, man simply cannot fathom the depth of his sinfulness, nor can he fathom the holiness of God. Man in his sinfulness just simply cannot bridge such an infinite chasm. But Jesus could see it. Jesus understood all of this. And it was for this reason that he felt compassion for the multitude. The word compassion is a term that is rooted In a term that refers to literally the intestines or to the bowels. And of course it is used figuratively figuratively in scripture as well as literally to describe emotions. You see deep emotions produce physiological symptoms that we can literally feel in our stomach, in our chest, in our breathing. And we will even use terms similar to this in our modern day. To describe intense grief or pity or any other profound emotional anguish, we will use terms that have some physiological implication, describing some physiological symptom in our chest or in our stomach. For example, we might say that our heart is breaking or that something happened and it ripped my guts out, you know, those types of things. Well, the point is simply this, folks. And I want you to catch this. Jesus looks upon the multitudes and and he saw the depth of their depravity. He looked at them and he saw the blackness of their spiritual blindness. He saw the horrors of hell that awaited all of those who were rejecting him. And because of that, his body was racked with emotion. His innermost being churned with pity and with compassion for them. Beloved, may I remind you of something? Do you realize that according to Scripture, before the foundations of the earth were laid, before God caused the light to separate the darkness, before the glorious heavenly bodies of the sun and the moon were set into orbit, before we were even created, Before the the serpent slithered into the heart of man in the garden. Before all these things, Jesus had compassion on us. You see, even before all of those things, the word of God tells us that he knew that sin would poison the world. The Lord Jesus knew that he was going to have to curse his creation Because it was no longer bringing him glory, but he would do it in hope of a day someday when he would restore things back to Edenic splendor and ultimately create a new heaven and a new earth. He knew that Adam's sin would plunge the whole human race into sin. He knew that every person of Adam's lineage would also rebel against him and violate his law. The Lord knew all of that. He knew that, as the scriptures tell us, in Adam all would die. But, beloved, in his great compassion, he set into motion a plan of redemption before time began. There had to be a second Adam 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5.22, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Friends, before time began, Jesus entered into a covenant with the Father to be the second Adam. And I want to rehearse some of this great theology for you for just a moment so that somehow you can grab a hold of what it means for Jesus to have compassion. Because the compassion that he felt is something that is rooted in things far, far beyond our ability to experience and understand. You see, before time began, he knew that he would suffer and bear the shame of our sin that we might, through his shed blood, be reconciled to God. And ultimately, because of his compassion, before time began, he would set into motion a plan that would bring sinners to himself and into eternal glory. In eternity past, his great compassion caused him to decree his saving purposes. And we read that even our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundations of the earth. Then in the fullness of time, this same compassion moved him to stun even the angelic hosts. As the Lord Jesus stepped out of the glories of heaven and he took upon himself the form of a man. And the word of God tells us that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. You see, beloved, this compassion was set into motion in eternity past. And as Paul tells us in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, before us in this text, we see the eternal plan of redemption being played out as the incarnate Christ looks across the multitudes and feels the, the pity and the pain that motivated him in eternity past to enter into that covenant with the Father and to, de and to decree his plan of redemption and to set it all into, emotion, into motion. And it was that eternal plan that we see being played out before us that also motivated him throughout all of redemptive history to call out from among those whom he would save. Dear friends, this is a compassion that surpasses our ability to understand or to comprehend. And to think, now catch this, his compassion did not cease at the cross, but it continues on today. Because today he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. He is our perpetual advocate and because of his compassion, he has erected a mercy seat. He has given us the throne of grace. Indeed, as the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews four, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, verse 16 of Hebrews four tells us, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, these staggering truths of divine love should bring comfort to even the most severely distressed in our midst here today. In thinking of this, I was struck by Charles Spurgeon's testimony regarding this very thing. Here's what he had to say, and I quote, Yea, and I do remember since I first saw him and began to love him Many sharp and severe troubles, dark and heavy trials. Yet I have noted this, that they have never reached that pitch of severity which I was unable to bear. When all gates seem closed, there has still been with the trial a way of escape. And I have noted again that in deeper depressions of spirits through which I have passed, and horrible despondencies that have crushed me down, I have had some gleams of love and hope and faith at the last moment, for he was moved with compassion. If he withdrew his face, it was only till my heart broke for him, and then he showed me the light of his countenance again. If he laid the rod upon me, yet when my soul cried under his chastening, 
He could not bear it, but he put back the rod and he said, my child, I will comfort thee. End quote. You see, friends, for those of you that might be here today and you're grieving or perhaps you're living in some quiet despondency, some quiet desperation. Perhaps there is some fear that has gripped your heart. Perhaps you're anxious about some issue in your life. Maybe you feel as though for whatever reason your life is spinning out of control. May I humbly remind you of the Lord's great compassion for you, for me. You see, whatever you are experiencing today has been lovingly ordained by a compassionate God. Remember the words in Lamentations 3 and verse 31. For the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. In Isaiah 49 and verse 15, we are reminded of his compassionate and never ending care for those whom he loves. There we read the words of God where he says, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Friends, that's a staggering thought. And the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 145 and verse 8, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and His mercies are over all His works. And then later on in verse 18, he goes on to say, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him. Well, again, I, I trust you will guard these treasured truths. In your heart and allow them to snuff out those fears and those discouragements. And those times where your heart will tell you, God, you're being indifferent to me. Don't you see my pain? Well, the fact is, he sees it in ways that you cannot ever imagine. So we see the divine compassion of Jesus as he looks out across the multitudes. And frankly, this is a common reaction that we see in the scripture For he was indeed, according to Isaiah 53, verse 3, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. His agony of heart is poignantly expressed in Matthew 23 and verse 37, when when the Lord pensively reflects upon the rejection of his own people whom he loved. There he laments, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Likewise, Luke tells us of the pathos Jesus experienced over the rejection of his people when when he approached Jerusalem for the last time. He looked out upon Jerusalem we were told that he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. So, friends, Jesus looks at the multitude and he looks at them with compassion. Why? Because according to verse 36, They were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. The term distressed comes from a root that literally means to flay or to skin like we would skin an animal. And the idea here is that these people have been torn apart. They have been ripped open. They have been mangled. By whom? Well, the answer is clear. By their own shepherds. Can you imagine that? The ones who should be protecting and caring and nurturing the sheep. Instead, these people are confused and bewildered and they're exhausted by all the ridiculous laws the Pharisees had imposed upon them. 
And they're overwhelmed by the gnawing guilt of sin in their own heart, even though they're desperately trying to vindicate their sin by following all of the laws. But they know down in their heart that it's a sham. And friends, may I remind you that hypocrisy may bring outward applause, but it will inevitably produce inward condemnation. And they felt this. Their knees buckled under the weight, the oppressive weight of legalism. It reminds me of people that I've encountered, one that I encountered not too long ago, where a man had gotten caught up in the word faith movement that we've talked about. He'd gotten caught up in the teaching of a false teacher, many false teachers for that matter. And he had gone to have a healing for himself. And one day I found that he went to the hospital. And in talking with him, he was very quick to tell me, oh, don't get it wrong. I've got my healing. I've got my healing. But he wanted to explain why he was going back to the hospital, because obviously he still was not healed. Oh, I've got my healing. And he said, what I need now is more faith to receive it. What a poor man, deceived by a false teacher, weighted down by confusion and desperation, thinking that he doesn't have enough faith and confused about who God is and confused about all of those issues because some false shepherd has skinned him. You see, false teachers will inevitably require what people cannot do and promise what they cannot deliver. And this is what produces the distress. And it's for this reason the Lord looked out and saw the multitudes and he had compassion on them. He also said this, says that they were downcast. The word literally can be translated thrown down upon the ground face first in an utterly helpless position. It's the idea of lying helpless because of a mortal wound. And you think, what type of shepherds would do such a thing to their sheep? And again, the answer, false shepherds. Remember, the Lord tells us that they are like savage wolves that come in among the flock and they rip them apart with deception and with self-serving agendas. John MacArthur says it so well, and I quote, Their religious leaders of that day gave them no spiritual pastures, nor did they feed them, give them drink or bind up their wounds. Instead, they were spiritually brutalized by uncaring, unloving leaders who should have been meeting their spiritual needs. Consequently, the people had been left weary, desolate and forlorn, end quote. Friends, some of you have come from similar situations. In various churches, a woman came to me from this particular fellowship not too long ago and said, Pastor Dave, you know, I went to church all my life and I have never heard of the sovereignty of God until I came to this church. She went on to say that all I have ever been taught are legalistic rules that I must obey to keep from losing my salvation. Oh, dear friends. That's inconceivable. Others of you have said, you know, I never heard the gospel until I came here and I've been to church all my life. Can you imagine that? My dear mother-in-law was that way. She was in a church for years and years and years. Never heard the gospel. Others have said, I've never heard about the rapture of the church. I've never heard about the second coming. Some of you have said, I've never heard about the millennial kingdom. And on it goes. You see, this is what happens when shepherds fail to feed their sheep and fail to protect them from false teaching. So Jesus saw their dreadful spiritual condition and he was moved with compassion. And then secondly, we see a divine reflection here. Verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. You see here, the metaphor changes, if you'll notice, it changes from that of shepherding to harvesting. 
And I want to elaborate on this for a moment because this figure of harvesting is often misunderstood. The harvest, dear friends, is not a reference to the lost, lost people in need of salvation. But it is a picture of the harvest of divine judgment that awaits them. You see here, the compassion of Jesus is, is further explained as the Lord of the harvest re- reflects upon the harvest of eternal judgment. Now, there's a number of passages that help us understand this. Let me give you but a few in Isaiah chapter 17, verses 10 through 11. God speaks through Isaiah to Israel and warns them of the harvest of divine judgment. And there he says, for you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, you plant delightful plants and set them with vine slips of a strange God. In the day that you plant it, you carefully fence it in. And in the morning, you bring your seed to blossom. But the harvest will be a heap in a day of sickliness and incurable pain. The prophet Joel also reminds us in Joel chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. And by the way, there in that text, we see God warning of that day when he pours out his wrath of divine judgment against the nations that mock him. The end of the tribulation before or as he comes and at his second coming. And there we read the, the Lord says there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. I will put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the Valley of Decision, which is a reference to the Valley of Jehoshaphat that will open up when the Lord sets his feet upon the Mount of Olives and a vast valley will open up and move all the way into the Valley of Armageddon. In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 30, where we read of the parable of the wheat and the tares, you will remember that Jesus warns us how the the wheat and the tares will grow up together until The harvest. And he goes on to speak of the righteous who will be harvested into eternal blessing and the wicked who will be harvested into bundles and burned up in the furnace of fire. And he says that in that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In fact, if you will look with me for a moment in Revelation chapter 14. You will see a graphic picture of the harvest. When the Lord Jesus returns again, beginning in verse 14 of Revelation 14. John here says, and I looked and behold, a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap because the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth. And threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Beloved, I hope you're beginning to see what Jesus saw when he looked out upon the multitudes. You see, when he looked around, he saw the ravages of sin. And he saw the ultimate harvest. And I hope that we will do the same things, dear friends, when we look at our family members who are lost, who are without Christ. When we look at our friends, when we look at our community, when we look at the world. I hope when you see them, you will see their end more than their sin. You know, we turn on the news and we see the shameless immorality of, for example, the homosexuals. Oftentimes what we see on television is so offensive we have to turn away our heads. 
Sometimes we will see those grotesque faces and preposterous outfits and actions. We see all kinds of people on television enslaved by their lusts, living in open rebellion against God. Friends, may I ask you, what is your reaction? Is it anger? Or is it pity? I hope that when you see the wickedness of the entertainment world, when you see the deception of the political world, when you see the blindness and the evil of the terrorists who have been deceived by the enemy of their souls to follow false gods, friends, I hope you're moved more with compassion than with hatred. These are the people we've been called to love. You see, friends, I hope you will do as what our Lord could do in ways that we can't imagine. I hope that you will look upon them and see their faces as they stand before the almighty judge. I hope when you look upon them that you will see their faces again when the verdict is announced. I hope you will see in your mind's eye what their face might look like when they are being cast into the lake of fire. And I hope you will see then again one last time what their face will look like when there is the weeping and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth in eternal torment. You see, friends, that is the reality that Jesus saw. Beloved, never lose sight of the inevitable judgment of the harvest. Because when you do, you will lose your compassion for the lost. Paul reminds us of this very thing in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 11, where we read, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. You know, it's so sad. There is a tragic and almost imperceptible trend in contemporary evangelicalism to downplay the realities of hell. And many people just deny it altogether. We see Jesus being depicted in his love and in his compassion, but very seldom do you hear anyone speak of his wrath. But friends, may I remind you again that the lowly lamb is also the roaring lion. And when he returns, he will not come in humiliation, but in glorification. And he will glorify himself in his wrath. The Holy Spirit speaks of this same Jesus that we see here having compassions on the multitudes. And we read in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7, the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So, friends, the Lord pensively reflects here upon the unimaginable tortures of eternal punishment for those who refuse to repent and place their faith in him as Lord and Savior, because this will be their destiny. Please understand that Jesus was grieved to the core of his being to know that anyone would ever be sentenced to that place that he speaks of in Mark 9:43 of unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched you see indeed as we read in 2 Peter 3:9 it's not his desire that any should perish well with all these realities racing through the mind of the incarnate Christ he, being the Lord of the harvest, is compelled to make provision of workers because he says the workers are few, a problem that still plagues the church today. So finally, we notice the divine provision in verse 38. There we read, therefore, beseech, he says, the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest you see, friends, here again, we see his love. We see his grace in motion. We see his grace in action. You see, true compassion will compel you to act. It will energize your evangelism. It will motivate you into personal ministry. And if you're not involved in evangelism and discipleship, 
Your compassion is weak. You see, true love is action, not abstraction. Love not only sees the plight and the destiny of the lost, but as we see here in this text, it beseeches the Lord of the harvest in heartful prayer to raise up more workers. May I remind you that our Lord's provision for workers begins with you and with me. You see, we must know that we are first on the list. So we pray that he would give us the boldness, the compassion, the power to throw ourselves into the work of evangelism and discipleship. We must warn other people of false shepherds. And warn them of the harvest of divine judgment that's coming. Folks, will you notice something as we begin to close this morning? Notice it says we are to be workers. It can be translated laborers. Friends, this is a person who actively does something. This is a person who actively engages himself or herself in doing something. In this case, evangelism and discipleship. You notice the Lord does not say, pray for more supervisors. Pray for more spectators. Pray for more financiers. Pray for more administrators, more musicians, more church members. He says, pray for workers. You know, too often I believe that the church looks like a state road construction site where one man's working and 14 are staying around watching. May I humbly ask you as your pastor, dear friends, examine your life. Ask yourself this right now. Where am I actively engaged in evangelism and discipleship? Well, you know, Pastor, I I show up at church fairly often and I give a little money so others can do that. And I even pray for missionaries every now and then. Friends, such are the words of an immature saint living in flagrant disobedience to the word of God. To the clear commands of Scripture. You think I'm exaggerating? Let me challenge you. If I could have five minutes with you and you're this person, it would not take me more than five minutes to be able to discern a clear pattern of habitual sin in your life. I would be able to begin to see a divine forfeiture of blessing in your life. I would begin to see that you have a spiritual dryness that is robbing you of joy and power and fellowship with the Lord and his people. Look into your own heart right now, and you will see that it's a chore, not a joy, to study the Word of God and to meditate upon it. You'll look at your life right now, and you'll see that you have no passion for prayer, no rich times of communion, of prayer in your life. It's virtually non-existent. Well, others will say, well, you know, Pastor, that's just not my gift. Wrong answer. The great commission that the Lord gave us to go into all the world and make disciples is a command, not a suggestion to all the saints. Well, Pastor, I I just don't really know what to say. Friends, if you don't know what to say, even its most elementary forms, if you don't know the basics of the gospel, you need to examine your own salvation. Of course you know what to say. Yeah, but I don't know how to disciple. Folks, discipling is far more, as you've heard me say, than meeting on Tuesdays at 6 o'clock in the morning and going through a book of the Bible. Discipling is purposeful involvement with other people. There's always somebody that knows less than you do about the Lord. It might be a family member. It might be a friend. Get involved in evangelism and discipleship. Well, you know, I do other things around the church. Well, you know what? That's great. I'm glad you do. Praise God for that. But the question is, are you obedient in the area of evangelism and discipleship? Oh, child of God, I I pray that these feeble words will strike a new chord in your heart. I, I, I just pray that that these words today will begin to help you play the wonderful melodies of divine compassion in your own life. So that you can enjoy afresh the glorious strains of 
of sweet fellowship as you work for the Lord of the harvest. And may we all be overwhelmed with the Lord's reflection upon the harvest of divine judgment. May we all be just struck afresh with a sense of divine urgency to go about the business, go about the work of spreading the gospel. And I want to close with this poem that came from my heart as I finished a time of study and just reflecting upon these truths that struck me so hard. Oh Lord, I pray that Thou wouldst first send me into the fray. Would that I be first in line to show some soul Your way. May compassion swell within my heart and burst with gospel news and with the scene of hell in mind reach out with saving truths. Grant me power from on high with sinners you to plead and squelch my lazy alibis with an urgent sense of need. Stir my heart afresh, O Lord, to count my life but loss, that all my days with joy be full in taking up my cross. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you will take these words and move them across our minds and cause them to find lodging within our hearts. Lord, bring conviction to us all because, Lord, when it comes to being workers, we are all so weak, so lazy, and we all have a myriad of excuses. Lord, I pray that the conviction of this will grab a hold of us and change us forever. Lord, I pray that we will begin to develop a sense of compassion as you have had and as you have today. And Lord, I pray that it will begin to bear much fruit as we share the gospel with people in our families, at work, in our communities. And Lord, I pray especially for some soul that might be here today that knows nothing of what we speak. Of some person who does not know you as Savior and Lord. Oh God, how I pray that you will overwhelm them with such conviction that they will run to the foot of the cross and cry out in repentance. Oh God, save me for I am a sinner. Lord, thank you for meeting with us. For it's in Jesus name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.